Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 11. We left off in verse 17. Hebrews 11, verse 17. The title of our study tonight is It Can Be Done Part 2. So if you were here Last week, you remember that it can be done, and we're looking at the hall of faith, the heroes of faith, how their lives rise up off the pages of scripture and declare that it can be done. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your promise that you're with us, that it's not by power or by might, but by your spirit. As we study the lives of those that we're examples of faith. We pray we would be strengthened in faith. We would be strengthened in our confidence in you. I pray for each person, God, in each situation that they're going through in their life, those struggles, those doubts, that you would minister to them through the power of your Holy Spirit. So we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 17 of chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son. Quite the story for Abraham is God had given him finally the promised son, Isaac. Isaac is growing now to be a teenager, a young adult. God speaks to him and says, I want you to take this son to the mountain that I will show you and sacrifice him and kill him and put him upon the altar. Well, wait a second, God. This is gonna be the child that is going to carry on the seed to make my descendants as the stars of the sea. Isaac wasn't married yet. He wasn't at that place of having children. That promise had not been fulfilled. The death of Isaac seemingly would be the death of the promise of God. So there's this tension that's taking place between God's call that has been already given and what God is currently doing in Abraham's life. And notice that it says Abraham was tested, that God will test us. At times he will give us an opportunity to see whether or not he's number one in our lives. It would be very easy for Abraham to put Isaac on this pedestal in his life. And so now God is saying, am I more important to you than Isaac? A very difficult test. And what we find in Genesis chapter 22 is Abraham didn't halter. He didn't stutter. He didn't wait and think about it. He woke up that next morning and he said, we're going to go. And he walked in obedience to, to the Lord. So let's look at verse 18. Of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Verse 19 concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So you have this tension between God's promise that Isaac would be the one, and then now God's saying to put him on the altar, and the answer is faith. In verse 19, it says that Abraham concluded. This word concluded, it's also translated reasoned. It means to calculate or to compute. Abraham did some hard mental work in the midst of God's call and this walk to Mount Moriah, which, by the way, is the same mountain range in which Christ was crucified. So you can see the clear foreshadowing to Jesus Christ. So as he's walking, he's calculating. Okay, this is what I know God has said. Isaac is the promised son. I know that that's gonna be true. But I also know that God clearly spoke to me that I am to sacrifice my son. I think in the craziness in the world that we live in today, we do need to clarify this point. 
God is not going to call you to kill your children. And I, th- I thought, you know, that would never have to be spoken out loud in church. That would be a, a no-brainer. But more and more, we see the psychosis of the world and people's thinking. And somehow they could go, well, I remember Abraham and Isaac. And maybe God's calling me to do this with, with my children. We don't see this as a command that goes throughout Scripture for us to kill our children, to sacrifice our children? What's the principle that God is giving that we wouldn't put our children on a pedestal, that God would be be number one? So I want to be clear, clear on that. Abraham could go to offer his son because he believed that God could resurrect Isaac. And we see that at the end of, of verse 19. He says, was able to raise him up even from the dead. In Genesis 22, verse 5, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. First time in scripture that worship's ever mentioned, which gives us a, a deep understanding of what it means to worship the Lord, to hold nothing back, to put all things in his hands. But for tonight's Bible study, the point is this, that he believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. You could see how Abraham would get to this place because he'd already seen God do the supernatural. He was dead. Abraham was dead physically. He was past the age of being able to have kids. Sarah was barren her whole life, and also she was old. She was 90 years old. They had experienced the supernatural move of God. So when God says, you know, I can raise him from the dead, Abraham, he believed it. If you're not familiar with the story, maybe you're going, did he actually kill his son? Did he kill Isaac? And right as he was getting ready to, God stopped him and provided a ram that was in the thicket. So this is a great example to us of faith. And maybe you can relate a little bit tonight that there's this tension that's happening in your relationship with the Lord. You're going, God, you called me to do this and now you're calling me to do this and the two seem to be contradictory and we have to focus on the character of God. We have to focus on the promises of God and get us to that place where we're concluding, where we're reasoning uh, amongst ourselves to see the goodness and the the character of God. So tonight it's gonna move pretty quickly. So I'd encourage you to take notes. So we just looked at Abraham. Now we're gonna go to his son, Isaac. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. His two sons, Jacob and Esau, the two twins, One hairy, one not so hairy. Esau literally means hairy. He must have been a hairy boy. When he was born, what should we call this guy? Well, it's pretty obvious, hairy. (laughs) So he gets the name, the name Esau. Esau was the older, Jacob was the younger. Jacob was a man that was cunning and deceptive and manipulative. He tricked his father into receiving the blessing. Ultimately, it was the sovereignty of God. It was Jacob who was going to be the one that was going to be blessed by the Lord. But the lesson here for us is that Isaac, by faith, he blessed both Jacob and Esau. And this is something that we see in this section of scripture of parents, grandparents, to put our hand upon our children and to pray for them in faith that God would move in their life. And this was hugely important in the Old Testament. If your parents did this for you, it was something that was very valued and treasured and and longed for and anticipated. 
And it wasn't something that was taken lightly, and, and God commends it. God says, this is something that we should do as parents. This is a, something that we can a, apply to our lives. I have a, a good friend of mine, and he's uh, raised the majority of his kids. He has five kids, and I was kind of picking his brain on parenting, and he said, you know, I've watched a lot of parents, and a lot of parents have done all of the right things, and their kids don't know the Lord and aren't walking with the Lord. And then I've seen other parents that have struggled and stumbled and made a lot of mistakes, but they've done one thing. They've fervently, faithfully prayed for their children in faith. And so he said early on, that's what I adopted as my model of parenting. If I was gonna do one thing, I was gonna pray, and I was gonna pray hard for my kids. I think there's some insight there. How is he approaching parenting by faith? Even for praying for kids, it's, realizing that it's out of our control, that there needs to be the intervention of God. I think we can all say amen on that, can't we? In our own lives and in the lives of of our children. And we see this with Isaac as he comes to the end of his life, as he blessed Jacob and he blessed Esau concerning the things to come. And I think this is wise as we pray for our kids is God may give us insight and put things in our hearts that are yet in the future for them. Not like we're gonna know all the details of their lives, but to to start to pray the things of God that would be good and beneficial for them. They're gonna spend much more time with their spouses than they'll spend with us, so pray for that. You know, work is a big part of, of life, pray for that. Friends are a huge influencer in life, so, so pray for that. You know, things that we know that will be coming in the future, and the most important thing, a relationship with the Lord. Jacob followed this model of praying for the next generation, in verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, and worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. So first thing with Jacob is there's a lot about Jacob's life and Isaac's life that's not mentioned here. This is just a real quick pin, a real quick snapshot of their life. Jacob, a character study of him, is so worth going back and looking at at his life. I would encourage you to spend some time in, in Genesis looking. And here he comes, now he's in Egypt, it's the culmination of his life, he's about ready to die, and he prays for Manasseh and Ephraim. And he put his right hand on the older, on Ephraim. And then we find that he switches it to where he puts his right hand, the hand of blessing upon Manasseh. And what does Joseph do? Joseph goes, no, no, you got it all wrong. That's the younger. But Jacob was feeling the Lord's leading and saying, no, it's Manasseh that's going to receive that blessing. And he too prayed for his Future generations, this time it was his grandsons by faith. I'd encourage you to do this if you're a grandparent. From what I'm told, there's no greater joy than being a grandparent. You know, grandparents love to to tell us how much they enjoy being grandparents, which is wonderful. Be involved uh, in your grandkids' lives. Seek to try to pass on that, that godly legacy and pray for them. Put your hands on their shoulders. Pull them up on your lap. If they're, they're a teenager, you know, plop your hand on them and just ask that God would bless them and that God would reveal himself to them. There's a real deep nugget of truth in verse 21 as he worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. Jacob was a manipulator. He was a control freak to the nines, type A personality. And I'll let you read more in Genesis to see what I'm talking about. 
But throughout his life, that was his mode of operation until one evening that he wrestled with God. He wrestled with the angel of the Lord. I'm not gonna let you go, Jacob says, until you bless me. And God knocks his hip out of joint, out, out of socket. I'm not a doctor, but from what I understand, it's very difficult and very painful to have your hip knocked out of joint. You think of how painful a shoulder is, but a hip is even a bigger joint, more weight upon it, more strength upon it. And he was never quite the same from that point on. Scripture tells us right here, he walked with a limp. He leaned upon his staff. This was a point of weakness for him. Why would God allow his leg to never quite be the same so that he'd always remember this encounter with God and he would seek to allow God to be in control instead of trying to be in control himself. In fact, even his name changed from Jacob to Israel. This was a real transformative time in his life and instead of running away from the weakness, he leaned into it and he worshiped God. The idea here is, ooh, this kind of hurts a little bit. I remember, God, you're in control. And that's important for us as well, is, is there's going to be weakness in our life. There's going to be things that remind us of our own depravity, to remind us to put things in God's control. We want to run away from that staff, don't we? We want to run away from that limp. But I got news for you. That limp's not going anywhere. <laughs> God will leave it there for his purposes. And so we allow that point of pain to become a point of dependence upon God and upon worship. So Jacob's life is remembered by faith. And of all of the things of Jacob's life that could be commented on, it's the prayer for his grandsons and leaning on his staff and worshiping the Lord. Now we go to Joseph. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. Another very deep character study in, in Genesis. Joseph is the youngest son of Jacob until Benjamin was born much later. At the time, he was the only son of Rachel who was the wife that Jacob loved. He loved Leah less. Leah had more sons. So you can imagine the dysfunction inside of this family. Like we talked about last week, all of these heroes that we're mentioning, they also had points of weakness and failure. So Joseph's growing up in this environment, plus he loved to declare that he had a dream that all of his brothers would bow down to him. How does that fit for older brothers? Not very well. What did fit was the coat of many colors that his dad had given to him that he didn't give to any of the other brothers. All of this led to Joseph being sold as a slave to Egypt. Just about was killed by his brothers, but instead they decide to sell him as a slave. Ends up being the, the second in charge into Pharaoh. And his life ends with his dad, Jacob, and all of his brothers and the nieces and nephews, all of the family that will become the nation of Israel is living in Egypt. And Joseph says, wait a second, this is not where we're going to stay. It would have been so easy for them to just stay in Egypt forever, but he knew that wasn't God's plan. So he says, Israel will depart. There will be that time where we're going to go to the promised land, and when we depart from Egypt, I want you to make sure that you take my bones because I want to be buried in the promised land. Remember our definition of faith at the beginning of chapter 11? that it's the evidence of things not seen. He had faith in what was not seen. There was evidence for what wasn't seen and he believed it. And he says, I know someday 
we're going to be in the promised land and make sure my bones go to the promised land. A wonderful man of faith. I think Joseph's entire life is an expression of faith. We're going to get a little bit more detail on Moses this evening. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now time has gone by. A new pharaoh is in charge in Egypt and he doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't remember all that Joseph had done for the nation of Egypt. And so he begins to persecute all of the Israelites, Jacob's descendants, because he sees them growing in, in multitude. It gets so bad that when a baby boy is born, he tells the midwives to go ahead and kill those baby boys upon birth. I was thinking this week that how difficult that must have been for obviously the parents and also the midwives, doctors, midwives. No one goes into this profession of delivering babies to, to kill babies. And so these midwives are now put in this place by the king, by the pharaoh, where they're supposed to end the life of of these babies. And we read there at the beginning of Exodus that because of their fear from God, they did everything they could to not follow that command, the midwives. Here in verse 23, we find the parents' faith. Moses' parents had faith that when their son was born, they saw that their son was a beautiful child. I think this is more than just the physical appearances of Moses, their hearts were stirred to believe that God had a plan for their son Moses. I think this is another important thing for us as parents and and grandparents is, is believe that God has a plan for our children. If you're not a parent, you're not a grandparent, and you look into the face of a child seeing the beauty that God has put into that child, that the Lord has a plan for him. And they saw that plan, they saw that that beauty, and so she hid her son for three months. And she's not afraid of the king's command. She has more respect for God and for life than she does for the king's command. And God commends the parents for faith. Their names are Amram and Jochebed. And we find that from Exodus 6.20. Those are some good biblical names right there. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses was the lawgiver. He was the historian. He was the deliverer. Scripture tells us that he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. But even more than all of that, he was a man of faith. He was a man who trusted God and trusted God's promise and trusted in the evidence of what was still unseen. And this faith is first expressed when he becomes of age. He enters into adulthood and he says, I'm not going to be called the Pharaoh's daughter. And part of this story that you may be missing is that mom went ahead and hid her son for three months. He's obviously getting loud. She can't hide him any longer. Puts him in the Nile River. Pharaoh's daughter just happens to be taking a bath. Sees this little baby floating in a basket. It wasn't a coincidence. It was God's hand. And so she then rescues the baby, adopts Moses as, as her own, She needs someone to nurse this child. They didn't have formula yet in the grocery store. And so there needs to be milk for this little guy. And here's Miriam, Moses' sister, watching in the bushes saying, I know someone that could 
nurse this child, and of course it was mom, and so Moses got to spend probably the first couple of years till he was weaned in that culture before he went and lived in, in the Pharaoh's house. And now he's of age, and he says, I'm not going to be called the daughter, the son of the Pharaoh's daughter any longer. This is a huge leap of faith for him. And why would he do this? I wish that I knew the backstory to this, don't you? Like, were there Hebrews that were slaves inside of the Pharaoh's daughter's house, and they're coming to Moses and saying, hey, Moses, you know, have you ever realized you don't look much like an Egyptian? (laughs) You look like a Hebrew. And you know what? This is what God's doing amongst the Hebrew people. I don't know, but somewhere along the line, Moses got true and genuine faith in the Lord. Or possibly he remembered things from those first part of his life with with his mom. Or God, apart from all those things, spoke to Moses. But he makes a very wise decision and he separates himself from Egypt. He separates himself and he associates himself with the people of God. And by faith, we need to do the same. If you haven't done that yet as the child of God. When you receive Christ as your savior, you're going against the flow. You're swimming upstream. And Egypt often represents the world in scripture. And you gotta realize we're now separate. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And we separate ourselves in our identity, not from relationship, but in our identity, realizing that we belong to Christ and we associate with the people of God. Notice his choice. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. He says, I know if I'm going to associate with God's people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, it's going to be suffering. And if I choose that suffering, I'm going to be passing on the pleasure of sin. The easy life, the life of privilege, the sinful life. Can you imagine the kind of temptation that would go with being the Pharaoh's daughter's son, being in the royal family? It's by faith. He sees the nature of sin and he also sees the value of holiness, the passing pleasure of sin. If you're a Bible underliner, that's worth underlining. If you've got an iPad this evening or a tablet and you like to highlight, that's worth underlining. If anybody ever tells you that sin is not fun and there's no pleasure in sin, they're lying to you. If sin wasn't fun, why would we do it? There is that instant moment of gratification that happens when we sin. But notice what scripture says. It's the passing pleasure of sin. There's a moment of gratification, but then a lifetime of pain. And what Moses chose is he chose the pain up front. He said, I'll take the pain for a life that's worthwhile. Instead of saying, I'll take the pleasure that's going to result in a life of pain. Jesus said it this way. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. It's difficult, it's narrow, but it leads to life. And he chose that narrow way. We'll be faced with this time and time again in our lives. I've never met someone that's ever articulated, you know, that college fling, that was so worth it. I'd go back and do that all over again. That that, that was wonderful, you know. Describing this Adultery, oh yeah, that was, that was great. I am so glad for the adultery. Woo, good times. Great oldies, let's do that again. Let's do that all over again. Yeah, unbelievers say stuff like that. But as believers, we don't look back at times of sin in our lives with going, 
Woo, that was sure fun. Let's do that one again. We go, Lord, thank you by your grace that you have saved me out of that, that you delivered me out of that. I don't ever want to go back. God, I don't want to be like the dog that returns to the vomit. We don't, we don't find ourselves articulating those things. We, we are always in a place of regret when it comes to sinful decisions. But have you ever regretted holiness? Have you ever regretted following the Lord? Have you ever regretted passing up on the pleasure of sin to pursue God's call upon your life? Look at verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the riches, the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. He saw the invisible. He put faith in the invisible. The invisible became more important than the visible. He said, I want the reproach of Christ. He looked forward to a a coming Messiah. And so he saw that as being greater than those temporary riches because he looked for the reward. This is why he could suffer. This is why he could associate himself with the people of God. This is a theme that we find as we go through scripture. In Romans 8, verse 18, it says, For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul also chose a life of suffering because he saw the eternal reward. He said it's worth it. It's completely worth it. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but we look at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Imagine with me 60 seconds in heaven. It would only take 60 seconds in heaven for us to get this principle and apply it to our lives. Let's divide this 60 seconds into 15 second increments. The first 15 seconds, you're going to behold the face of Christ. Full on, up close and personal. That'd be hard to only get 15 seconds. But you only get 15 seconds and you behold the face of Christ. And the next 15 seconds, you get to behold all of the angelic hosts. And before you condemn me for mentioning that, scripture provides the scene of heaven with the angelic hosts many times through scripture. So it is gonna be fascinating. So you get 15 seconds to look at the angelic hosts. And then you get 15 seconds to look at the architecture of heaven. My father-in-law is an architect. He, he would be grieving over the fact that he only got 15 seconds. But you get to check it out. You get to really look at some of those colors that are described in scripture that we don't even have here on earth. And then your last 15 seconds, you get to behold the face of family members who have already been glorified. And then boom, you're back here. That'd be kind of a bummer. Be a huge letdown. But the whole goal would be for us to then live like Moses. We know the reward. The reward becomes so fresh in our minds, we go, okay, I'll take the suffering. That's all right. Of course I'm going to be on a life of suffering. Of course I'm going to pass up on the the pleasure of sin. Because I'm going to be with the Lord. I'm going to have this eternal reward with the Lord. God's not going to give us that opportunity. Why not? Because he wants us to receive it by faith. Moses didn't have that opportunity as well. 
It's where the invisible becomes more important to us than the visible. I imagine that some of you tonight are on a tough road. And studying the scripture is not just about knowing the content. One put it this way. One preacher, one pastor had great content and another pastor had good students. And what's that meant by is one pastor took the content and taught it with a desire that people would take it and live it out in their lives. So as we look at this with Moses, we can get this content in our minds. And good content. Oh, Moses, wow, this is amazing. He passed up on sin. He didn't associate as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He didn't go for the riches. But now we need to then, well, what does that mean in my life? That there's gonna be tough roads that God's gonna ask us to go on. Roads that hurt, where there's suffering that's involved, where we could choose to go off that road. And sometimes we wonder, why in the world am I on this road? This is difficult. Nobody else seems to be on, on, on this road. But then we come to this place and we look at the life of Moses and we go, oh yeah, I understand the reward. I'm living for the Lord. I'm living for his kingdom. Don't ever buy into the lie that it's about this life. Jesus never taught that it's about this life. He taught it's about eternal life. It's our focus upon heaven and that eternal reward. Continuing with Moses' story, it says, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He forsook Egypt altogether. How did this happen? Part of what's not included here because it's the hero of faith is Moses did commit murder. He saw an Egyptian brutalizing a Hebrew to stand up in justice, absolutely. He took it a little bit too far and he killed the Egyptian and he had to flee for his life. He had to forsake Egypt. And as he goes out into the wilderness, spends 40 years in the wilderness, then God calls him to return to Egypt to be the deliverer. It fast forwards in Hebrews 11 to now when they're leaving Egypt, it's the final plague that's coming upon the Egyptians. And by faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch him. The Passover was applying the lamb, the blood of the lamb on the door of the house. Then judgment passed over. If you didn't have the blood of the lamb on the door of the house, the firstborn died. This is what happened to all of the Egyptians. And then God would have Israel celebrate the Passover every year. We're coming up on the Passover feast here as we come into the Easter celebration. This year, the two lined up together. Notice that he kept the Passover. It was something that he continued to do throughout his life. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus being the sacrificial lamb that we apply to our hearts. We have that same kind of faith as Moses. In verse 29, by faith... They passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. This is a monumental moment in the nation of Israel. The Red Sea's in front of them. God had led them to this point. Pharaoh's army's behind them. God, what are you doing? Talk about a rock in a hard place. Moses prays, expresses faith. God then parts the Red Sea. Scripture tells us they go across on dry land. Talk about an aquarium exhibit. Can, 
And the Red Sea is very warm. It's, It's warm water. There's a lot of marine life inside of it. Get to the other side and Pharaoh goes, well, that worked for them. I'm going to go across as well. He goes with his army. God collapses the Red Sea and they're, they're drowned. There's an expression of Moses' faith. By faith, they, they passed through the Red Sea. In verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. This brings us to the life of Joshua. Joshua has a divine encounter with the Lord. He gets God's game plan and he begins to live it out. They walk around Jericho one time every day, and then on the seventh day, they walk around seven times, shout, God brings the walls of Jericho down. It's the first victory inside of Jericho. This makes no human sense to walk around a city, a walled city, an enemy city, but it was God's plan. So they did it by faith. They exercised it by faith and God brought down the walls. What walls are you facing in your life tonight? How many ways have you tried to get the walls to fall down? Whether it's things that you desire to God to do in your own life or the lives of others, there's, there's just a barrier. Have you tried approaching it by faith? Have you tried approaching it by having an encounter with God and following his, his lead? And we can go to counseling, and that's good. There's, there's a place for that. But counseling is secondary to going to the ultimate counselor, Jesus Christ. Amen? So I'm not undermining counseling. By all means, get, get godly counsel. But what do you think that a godly counselor would have told the nation of Israel when they were trying to destroy Jericho? Not walk around it seven times and shout out loud and believe that the walls will come down. This is something that only came from God. So that's why man's counsel is secondary to meeting with the Lord and hearing what God would have to say and then approaching it through faith. And as God has given you his marching orders, keep walking in faith, keep trusting in faith, keep believing in faith, and God through faith will bring the walls down. A wonderful example to us of faith. Another example with with Rahab by faith, The harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she'd received the spies with peace. God shows his grace in bringing Rahab into the fold. She's a prostitute. She's a harlot. In the midst of that sinful condition, she had faith to believe that God was moving and working. The spies come into Jericho. She saves their lives. She hides them. She follows their instructions by faith to bring all of her family into her house and then hang the scarlet cord. So all of the other houses fell except for hers. Her house is in the wall. The walls fell, but God protected her. And she's an example of faith because she believed and she responded to the word of the Lord. What was interesting when the spies came into Jericho is God had already defeated their hearts. They had heard of the great works that God had done and Rahab chose to believe. Whatever your circumstance is tonight, you might be a prostitute. You might be dealing drugs. You might be here to do something crazy to the people of God. Your plan is to, well, churches are suckers and so I'm gonna that's a soft target. So I'm going to go in there and, and take advantage of some people. Well, just, just so you know, we do have security, you know, just to let you know that. But a lot of dudes in here like to pack some heat, but that's beside the point. God's our protector. But you're here to do some damage. You, that you're, that's your plan. That, that, that's why you came. 
But yet God's saying, you know what? You can repent and believe just like Rahab and show that faith of God redeeming your life and and saving your life. A wonderful example of faith and trusting in the goodness of God. Even the author of Hebrews runs out of time. He's gotta be a pastor. This is the point where he looks at the clock and looks at his notes and he goes, I gotta speed up a little bit. So verse 32 And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. These names should ring some bells as we recently went through Judges. Gideon really struggled with unbelief, but he also walked in faith, and he's recorded in the Hall of Faith. Barak would only go to battle if Deborah would go with him. He also struggled, but he did go, even though he struggled. Samson Who in the world would put Samson in the hall of faith? We had our junior high retreat this weekend and this morning. had the privilege of sharing with our junior high students. And we were with the life of Samson. Samson and Delilah. There's not one committee that would put Samson down in the hall of faith. Why? Because at the end of his life, he ended in faith. And his life too shows the power of God's redemption. God doesn't record his failings here. Jephthah. A great man of faith, but also made a very foolish vow. Also of David and Samuel and the prophets. David killed Goliath, great victories, but also committed adultery and murder. Ultimately, by faith, he's a man after God's own heart. Samuel responded to the voice of God as a young man and walked in obedience, and God lists him in the hall of faith. And then many of the prophets as well, and all the prophets And now this sums people from the time period of the Old Testament leading up to the crucifixion of Christ, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Who through faith stopped the mouths of lions? Daniel. So this gives us more detail about the story with Daniel when he was thrown into the lion's den because of prayer, he went to the lion's den in faith. He says, God, I believe that you can shut the the mouth of these lions, and that's exactly what God did. Quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the foreigners, which describes much of the Old Testament. What was the source of their strength out of weakness? They knew they couldn't do it themselves. And out of weakness, they relied upon the faithfulness of God. Women received their their dead, raised to life again. We see Elijah with the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, where she received her son, risen from the dead. From verse 33 down to verse 35, it's victory over circumstances. And sometimes through faith, God in his faithfulness will give us victory over our circumstances. You will trust him in the midst of a financial difficulty and God will provide the finances that are needed. You'll trust God in the midst of sickness and God will provide healing. But then we find that the text goes on because there's also victory in our circumstances or victory under our circumstances where God chooses to not take us out of the circumstance. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they may obtain a better resurrection. So faith in God doesn't mean that things will always work out our way. Sometimes it'll mean 
torture. Sometimes it'll be complete martyrdom. In verse 36, still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. We know that many of the prophets in the Old Testament went through immense persecution. We consider some of this mockings, scourgings, chained, stoned to death, sawn in two. There's reliable tradition that Isaiah the prophet was sawn in two. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. I thought my day was a difficult day until I meditated on this section of scripture. (laughs) I had a little bit of a tougher day today, but it really wasn't tough, you know? It's just was just a little bit more of a challenging day. But there's nothing, I didn't have to wander around in sheepskins today. I wasn't destitute today. I wasn't sawn in two today. I wasn't stoned today, even though it's legal in Colorado. I was not stoned today. And kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Of whom the world was not worthy Amen to that. The world was not worthy to these types of individuals. They wandered in the desert, in the mountains, in the dens, in the caves of the earth. David and Elijah were forced to the caves of the earth. These are really tremendous verses. We really finish with two powerful points in 39 and 40. And all of these having attained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. What was the promise? God sending his son. This ties back into the theme of the book of Hebrews that Jesus is greater than. Tonight we might be saying, I wish I could see the mouths of lions stopped. I wish I could walk through a dry Red Sea and all of these Old Testament saints would rise up off the pages of scripture tonight and saying, you're experiencing what we longed for and that was the reality of Jesus. Knowing that you're forgiven, not one of these individuals had Jesus living inside of their hearts. Not one of these individuals went to bed under the blood of the new covenant. They always went to bed under the blood of the old covenant, looking forward to a better hope. But we've received that promise. We have forgiveness. We have Christ living inside of us. In verse 40, God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So God says, there's been something better that has been given to us, and that's Jesus Christ. So why would we ever leave him? Why would we ever go back to the old covenant? And in fact, these Old Testament believers are not complete. That word perfect, it, it implies complete apart from us and the fulfilling of the new covenant. So I wanna try to wrap this up with some application tonight. And the first is, This area of faith in our lives, it's so important that we trust the Lord. In our lives, salvation first and foremost, and then the circumstances that we go through. So as we look to walk by faith, I think these are important questions. And the first is, does God's word say it? Does God's word say it? Because if we're gonna believe, we need to know what God says. As we've looked at these examples of men and women over the last two weeks, they knew what God was saying and what God had said. So what does God's word say? If you're struggling in faith, there's a way to build up your faith by hearing the word. 
Romans 10 tells us that. Where does faith come from? It comes from hearing the word of God. You hear the word, you get in the word of God, and the word of God will build up your faith. Otherwise, it's just kind of this aimless whim. Like, okay, what does it mean to walk by faith? Do I just kind of grab on to whatever feels good to me? No, <laughs> that's extremely dangerous. You grab on to what God has said. It's, it's our trust in, in him and in his word. So does God's word say it? And then the difficult question, do I believe it? Do I believe it? Okay, God has said it. I've read it for myself. Do I believe it? Do I believe what the scripture says about Jesus? What it says about salvation? Judgment. Do I believe what scripture says about riches? Do I believe what scripture says about salvation? And then lastly, do we obey it? Do we obey it? And so we now have a grid to approach our lives. Okay, Lord, I'm going through this. What does your word say? All right, you said it. I'm gonna believe it and I'm gonna seek to obey it. It can be done. Church, it can be done. So I got a little bit of homework for you. I want you to read ahead into chapter 12 because all of what we've studied for the next two weeks, it's gonna lead us to a very profound application in chapter 12. So let's stand and pray together. Father, I'm so thankful and refreshed by this section of scripture to see that this group of individuals had real struggles, real shortcomings, but yet they trusted in you and walked by faith. We have a simple prayer tonight. God, would you strengthen our faith? Would you grow us in faith? And we want to walk and live by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.